0: here's what I'd like you to do this morning before I get into the lesson and then we'll come back to this hopefully at the points for home I want you to think about two things in your life right now okay one thing I want you to think about is a personal issue that you've got going on right now think of something personal that's a a problem or an issue or an area where you need God's touch or an area where you've shut him out but but think of something personal in your life right now Okay, hey, you got it? Those are easy to come by. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to think of something in the bigger circle of your life that you're involved with. It may be work. It may be home. It may be politics. It may be, uh, uh, I don't know what it is, but, but, but school. It, but think of something outside of yourself. So the first thing's a personal issue with you. The second thing is you interacting in a bigger circle. Okay, you got those? Because today's lesson, I hope, will speak to you in each of those areas. If, if, if I do my job right and don't get in God's way, I think that's what should happen. Okay? So with that, we're talking about Baptists today. How many of y'all have ever been to a Baptist church? <laughs> okay, a good bit of you. It's not surprising. Baptists, where did this label come from? Baptist. Well, there was John the Baptist. I was spent some time yesterday with a fellow who's lived all his life in a Baptist church and went to Baylor. And and he told me, he said, uh, he said, you know, I've been trying to read the Old Testament and I've never read it all the way through, but I'm not finding baptism there in the Old Testament much. And I said, well, actually, I don't think you're going to really find it at all in, in a baptism sense. I mean, you got Naaman who's like going down seven times to get rid of his leprosy, but that's not really baptism. Okay? Uh, and, and he said, well, when did baptism start out? Because we have John the Baptist. He so, said, well, baptism sort of started out as a Jewish event between the close of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. Well, so where do we get this label Baptist? Why are we called Baptist? Is it because we follow John the Baptist? Is it because we, you know, what, what, what does it come from? You know, the, the label itself, a lot of people are really proud of that label. We see it on churches. There are some Baptist churches who are members of the Southern Baptist Convention who are taking it off of their signs. But a lot of people put it out there and put it out there boldly. And yet, interestingly enough, historically, Baptists started out as a derogatory term. It was a it was an insult. It was a way of it was a label applied to a group of believers that was an effort to insult them. But over time, it's grown into something that people are quite proud of. Where does the word come from? I was taught by somebody and I cannot remember who. But I heard it more than once. My friend Jeff Shreve was taught the same thing. So I was taught it in a Church of Christ tradition. Jeff was taught it in a Baptist tradition. I've read it in a few books, but I can't remember which ones. The idea that our English word baptism is made up by the the translators of the King James Version. Because the original Greek word meant immerse. At the time the church was not immersing and so instead of translating the word the greek word baptisma as as immersion or baptizo is the verb to immerse or i immerse but instead of translating it as immersion the translators decided they'd better come up with a new word so they just kind of made up the english word has anybody ever heard that other than us okay a number maybe 10% that's wrong it's just flat wrong. I don't know how else to say it. It's just flat wrong. Baptisma is a Greek word. That much is true. It's in our Bibles. We translate it baptism. Okay? The Greek word gets transferred over into Latin. In Latin, the Greek word baptisma becomes baptisma. Okay? Okay? It's not a big leap. You can sort of see how they made the change. <laughs> oh, don't get me wrong. They're using Latin alphabet instead of Greek, but it's a B, A, that pi is pi for P, T, I. That's a sigma or an S, M, A, baptisma. And then the Latin language or the Roman language Evolves into other romance languages from Roman, like French. And the word in Old French becomes baptisma. Well, that's not a hard one either. You can sort of see how that happens. And then the French, Normandy, William the Conqueror from Normandy in 1066 invades England. And brings in all of his French speaking words. And French is the main language spoken in England at court and intellectual circles for centuries. And so in England, in old English, there's this word baptismy. Well, that's not too hard to see where that came from either, is it? And then as Old English evolves, it evolves into Middle English, and it becomes baptimy. And Middle English, over time, becomes Modern English, and voila, baptism. But it was never a made-up word for some theological reason. It's a word, you can go back before the King James and see the English Tyndale version, Of the Bible, and he has no trouble with that word. The word itself has always meant within the Greek, and hence through our interpretations in the Bible or our translations, the Greek word baptizo means to immerse or to dip. Okay? And that's what it's meant in Greek, and that's what it means to this day. Now, we certainly use the word baptism to mean different things. When we talk about infant baptism, rarely do we mean immersion, though dipping is done in some infant baptism circles, where the child is dipped into the water. But baptism now takes on the idea of sprinkling and some other things as well. The original Greek word, though, was an immersion. Now, if that's true and we are called Baptists, why are we called Baptists? Well, there were different labels. The Anabaptists, remember when we studied them? Anna means repeat. And those were people who baptized again. They would baptize you were baptized as an infant, and then they'd rebaptize you. They were the rebaptizers. They were the catabaptists, cata, like catatonic means something's gone wrong. Okay. Those are people who are distorting baptism. They were called catabaptists. Then there's just the plain old baptists. And the reason it was used as a derogatory term is supposedly these people are just emphasizing it way too much. They're just, you know, that's like, um, I'm sure there's some illustration that would come to mind. But people who've just gone overboard on a subject. So you just label them with that. Like, um, um. Someone who talks real loud. Have you ever met a shouter? Okay. Well, it's not a, a statement. Or you know, someone brought up Seinfeld's the quiet talkers. I heard that over here. You know, it's it's that's just a trait that they're known by. Well, these people, they just talked about baptism. They're big on that baptism. They've taken it way overboard. That's where the name came from and the label came from. Now, my question to you is, what makes a Baptist a Baptist? In an effort to, yeah, I threw this in for, yes, that is the Jordan River. I threw this in for the people who have just returned from Israel who have an opportunity to be baptized in the Jordan River. And uh, that's where the picture came from. So um, what makes a Baptist a Baptist? Well, Dr. Bob's here. Let me ask you this question. Dr. Bob and I are in trial in New Jersey. Dr. Bob comes in and he's really proud of himself because he's eating so healthy while we're in trial. I said, really? He says, yes, each, bre- each, each day for breakfast, he's having a piece of fruit bread. I said, fruit bread? He says, yes. I've gone down to Starbucks. I get my coffee, and I get two slices of banana nut loaf. <laughs> I said, Bob, that's cake. He says, oh, no, it's bread. It says banana nut bread. And I said, Bob, it's banana nut cake. And he says, oh, no, it's banana nut bread. We get out the internet, we find out that if you buy the banana nut cake in uh, the Borgata Hotel in Atlantic City at the Starbucks, it has more calories and more fat grams than a quarter pounder from McDonald's. So the idea that you're eating this healthy bread for breakfast is like saying, Hey, I got me two quarter pounders at McDonald's because I want to start my day out really healthy. Okay? What? Who decides if it's a loaf or a bread or a cake? Well, they just put the label on it and you, one person's bread is another man's cake. Okay? Same is true when it comes to a Baptist. What makes a Baptist a Baptist? I'll bet you I could ask in here, how many of you are Baptists? And I'll bet you at least 10% of you that come to this church and are members of this church will not raise your hand because you'll say, well, actually, I'm just a Christian who's a member at a Baptist church. Okay? "Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay? What? So how do you decide what makes a Baptist? How do we decide that there are... 70 million Baptists in the world. Well, here's the way I decided I'd figure it out. First of all, I don't think there's anything set in concrete. I think we're dealing in generalities here. But in general, these five items are typical of most Baptists historically. And I got them from Professor Newman who taught church history at Baylor in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So this was his assessment historically of what makes a Baptist a Baptist. Number one, Baptists by and large believe in the absolute authority of Scripture. There's nothing above Scripture. Scripture is the authority. It is over the church. You don't have, you know, Dr. Fleming cannot stand up on Sunday morning and say, I know Scripture says this, but we know better. And so we practice that. Won't happen. Scripture is the authority and no one's going to contravene it. You know, do Baptists believe generally in the Apostles' Creed? Absolutely. The Nicene Creed? Absolutely. But not because the church found those to be proper expressions of faith. Baptists believe them because those creeds are found conceptually within the Bible. Does that make sense? Bible authority. Number two. Infant baptism is contrary to Scripture and inadequate for church membership. That's a general we got a Baptist over here. Kubosh. <laughs> He's got it going now. That is a Baptist tenet that is typical for, for a Baptist view. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more as we go along today. Um, number three, church membership. Belongs only to saved people. You don't come be a member of a Baptist church as an unsaved person. The church is not, whether it's a congregation or the church at large, the church in Baptist theology is not made up of people who genetically, through their parents, or culturally, through their society, are members. That's a club. In Baptist theology. Not a church. You can join a club. But a church. God adds you to the church. When you become his child. General Baptist theology. Next. Number four. Salvation. Is a personal issue of faith. You can't force it on someone. You can't go up to someone and you can make them a hypocrite, but you can't make them a Christian. You can get them to say, okay, okay, don't shoot. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But you cannot force faith on anyone. People make that decision despite how we would like to do otherwise. Most of us don't want to pull a gun, but I think all of us know someone in our lives that we wish they would accept Jesus and we could just force them to. And we're always trying to figure out how. We don't use guns. We typically will use manipulation. (laughs) Because we are, after all, civilized. (laughs) But general Baptist theology, you're not going to force salvation on anyone. And number five, general Baptist theology, baptisms by immersion, because that's what the word in the New Testament means. So that's what the practice in its fullness should be. Now, those are five tenets. And with that understanding of what makes a Baptist a Baptist, I want to talk today about Baptist expansion in the United States of America. You with me? Okay. Baptism and history is where we're going to start out. Got to follow here. Baptism is a New Testament practice that is of a rite or a procedure or a process or an event that happens to adults. By adults, we mean here people who've made a decision of faith. That's the only example we have. In the Bible, the closest you can come to any other example would be in the conversion story of Cornelius in Acts, where it refers that Cornelius and his household were baptized. But we don't know who was in the household. Every specific example we have in the New Testament is a baptism of someone who has made a profession of faith. How did we get to a point... Where baptism is something administered to infants. Well. Um, historically there were several points involved in this change. And it was a gradual change. And anytime you're looking at history like this. There was never a pronouncement of an event or a turn that says. Okay from here on out we're going to baptize infants because ABC. Immediately you're starting as, as you try and see how this process changed over centuries you're getting involved in some conjecture by the person making the opinion in other words this is what i'm going to tell you i'm going to tell you why i think it happened and i can tell you that scholars there are a bunch of scholars who agree with me but i can also tell you that there are some who disagree so you pay your money and take what you want okay but this class is free so i get to say whatever i want um Two events that I see that changed perspective on baptism. Event number one, the church started seeing baptism as a New Testament equivalent to circumcision in the Old Testament. Okay? In the Old Testament, you know Abraham uh, puts his faith in God and God as a sign and seal of the covenant s- s- says, I want you circumcised and I want your household circumcised. And they are. But then God for the future says. I want you to do this to each of your male children. Seventh day. And it's the sign and it's the seal. Now those children. Some would grow up in the faithfulness. That was shown by that covenant. And others would not. But the covenant is one. That was put on them. By their believing parents. As that male child was born. And lived for a week. And so. Baptism is seen theologically to be the New Testament or church equivalent of the Old Testament rite or procedure of circumcision. And so while in the Bible, in the New Testament, people would argue, you're only going to see adults baptized who are believers because it's like Abraham. It's the first dose. It's that first layer, that first generation. But succeeding generations will start to do that For their children. And the child should grow up into it. That's one reason. There's a second reason. Infant baptism really starts taking hold. The second reason. Involves this idea. That. Every man is or woman. Is born with the sin of Adam. Original sin. Baptism. Starting in the. 150's Starts becoming kind of a Magical right As christianity left the confines Of judaism judaism was pretty Strongly anti magic You know it's like forbidden in the old testament and You got stoned for it Okay so it didn't really become a profitable Industry within judaism It was a kind of a death sentence Type thing But in culture outside of judaism Magic was big And and the outside of Judaism people start influxing the church in mass numbers. And the idea of there being something magical about baptism, something magical about the waters, where maybe those waters magically wash away your sin. Where those waters, not the power of God, but the power of God through those waters, the waters have that magic cure for sin. Your sins are washed away by the water in a real water, physical sense. That concept, when you combine it with original sin, says you better baptize those babies. Or they're going to die in their sin. Unsaved. And so we see the church starting and and, and it's really interesting. There's another whole strain of the same magic concept of baptism That was mixed with some legalism. That said okay baptism washes you of your sins. That's the thing. So what you really ought to do. Is put it off till right before you die. Because that way you're sure you cover all of them. You don't have as long to live afterwards. So you find in starting about the 150s. A lot of people putting baptism off till they're dead. Almost. While you find other people saying no. It's time to start baptizing as infants. Needless to say. Once you start baptizing as, as infants, um, the changes uh, uh, evolve. You don't immerse that infant in water. And so it's adequate to dip, and then it's adequate to pour, and then it's adequate to sprinkle, though you should do it three times in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And over centuries, this is, these are the changes. Now, by the time the Baptists hit the scene in the 1600s, Most churches are practicing infant baptism. It's true for the Catholic Church. It's true for the Lutheran Church. It's true for the Calvinists. It's true for the Anglicans. It's true for the Puritans. They're practicing infant baptism. And along come the Baptists, and they take issue with this. They say, we're reading our Bibles, which people haven't been able to do maybe for the last 1,200 years. But we got them and we're reading them and we take issue with this. And this was happening in England, as we've already discussed, but it happens over in America because there's a time of religious persecution in England. And so a lot of the persecuted are coming over here. And the persecuted are the ones who won't follow the king as the leader of the Church of England, the Anglican Church. Well, those are Puritans who believe in infant baptism, the pilgrims that we talked about. But there are also some of these early Baptists. You get the Puritans that come over. This is a map of of North America as seen in the 1600s. This is an actual 1600s map, okay, that we've got up here on the PowerPoint. And if we zone in on the part that is here, the Atlantic coast, the map calls it the Sea of the English Empire, We now call it the Atlantic Ocean. Time didn't quite stick. I don't think after 1776 we were particularly fond of calling the East Coast, oh, the coast of the Sea of the English Empire. But in the 1600s, that's what it was called among English speakers. So we're going to take that and we're going to kind of expand on this. This is the Eastern Seaboard of the United States. And the names are hard for you to read, so I've kind of rewritten them. That's Carolina, that's Virginia, oh, sorry, Um, Virginia, there's Maryland, there's Pennsylvania, there's New York, and you know what's up there? New England. That's what they called it. John Smith first put that on a map in the early 1600s, New England, 1616 I think was his map. So this is the eastern seaboard. Here's what you've got. And into this comes some British people who are fleeing religious persecution. One of them is a fellow named Roger Williams. Bright guy, really bright guy. Roger Williams is born somewhere between 1600 and 1603. The accounts differ. He goes to school there in England, and he is brilliant. He's one of these guys. Have you ever met these people who can learn like crazy? There's this fellow, if he ever listens to this on the internet, he needs to email me. His name's Bob Rust. I lost track of Bob Rust in college. Bob Russ could learn foreign languages like nobody I've ever met in my life except maybe Becky, my wife. Becky's got a great ability to learn foreign languages. I mean, she can just, we get to go all over, and it's always fun because she can just prattle away. She's really good at, at picking it up. Bob Rust the same way. He could just pick up languages like crazy. Okay. There's this fella in England named Roger Williams. And he's leaving England and he's coming over to the U.S. and he's got wonderful training and this guy can talk. He can meet you. He can say hello. He's got English down. I mean, this guy's in his 20s. He's coming over here. He can not only meet you and say hello, but he can say saluate, which is Latin for hey, y'all. He can not only speak English and Latin, but he's also pretty good with Greek, Gaia. He's not only good, Gaia actually, he's not only good with English, Latin and Greek, but you want to talk to him, he can say Shalom to everybody that just came back from Israel. Shalom y'all, as we say in Lubbock. He not only has got down English, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, but in his 20s, if you want to say hi to him in Dutch, he can say guten dag to you too. And not only can he do it in Dutch, he can say salut and speak French with you all day long. This guy's got the gift. He comes over from England, he lands, and when he lands, the year is 1630, he has come on a ship to Boston. I couldn't get an actual picture of him on the ship. You may not be able to tell, but I made that picture up. Else that ship would have been like, you know, back on the, anyway, stern. Um, so I almost put him, this is what happens when you don't get any sleep, I almost put him leaning out on the mast like the Titanic thing, you know, with his, but... Didn't fit on the PowerPoint so well. He came to England in the came from England to the U.S. in 1630 from Boston. He lands. There's a church, a Puritan church set up by the Puritans who fled persecution because they didn't like the religious persecution in England. They come over. They find out they've got this fella. He's got all these languages. And immediately he walks off the boat and they say, hey, you want to be a pastor? We need one. You you, want to want to be our pastor? His answer, instead of being a polite no, this fellow not only spoke a lot of languages, but he spoke a lot. And so he didn't say no. He sort of said, not at Satan's church. Now, that's my version. You read his, it's written a little bit more politely, but not more. He basically says, no, y'all are so wrong. Your church is degenerate. Y'all are all going to hell and and I'm not going to have anything to do with you. Thank you, though. And with that, he tries to find a job. (laughs) Gets a church over in Salem, a little bit better Puritan church, a little bit more separatist. Uh, But they find out from some others what he said to the first church and then they withdraw their offer to him. And he kind of moves around, moves over to Plymouth. It's another little town over there on the Massachusetts area. Massachusetts figures big today in class. He goes over there, and while he's there, he picks up the Indian language. Might as well. Didn't know any Indian before. It was probably Algonquin or something like that. I don't know how to say hi in Algonquin. So instead, I did um, uh, Benaki, which is uh, up in Maine. That's Kwai. So he says hi now in Indian languages. That turned in real good because once he gets kicked out of Massachusetts for his outspoken religious convictions, he lives among the Indians for a while and finally buys some land from them around Narragansett Bay, which is just a little bit south of Boston. Pretty cool, huh? While he's there, let me show you where it is. There's Cape Cod. You know, that's the little boot. Type thing there. Right down here is Narragansett Bay. And he goes there and he establishes a community. He establishes a territory. And he establishes his territory based on religious freedom. He says, anybody's got the full liberty to believe anything they want to believe. This is pretty unheard of. This is pretty out there. People say, but you're a Christian. And he was a Christian. They say, how are you going to let people believe anything? They may not be Christians. His response was, is the religion of Jesus Christ so poor and so weak and so feebly grown, so cowardly and base that neither the soldiers nor commanders in Christ's army have any courage or skill to withstand sufficiently in all points a false teacher, a false prophet, a spiritual cheater, or a deceiver? He says, I don't think so. I think we're strong enough. I think you, you and, and I'll tell you this. I like his attitude. I don't, I don't, my faith, I don't live it in some small box. Someone wants to challenge, I have a friend who sent me a book. Said, read this, we're going to talk about it the next long plane ride. The God Delusion. I read it. I sent him one back. The Dawkins Delusion. Dawkins is the one who wrote The God Delusion. I said, you read this, I read yours, you read mine, and we'll talk about it on a plane. I, I'm, I'm all for it. I, 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 my faith is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And it's a firm foundation and a rock. And, and it's not because I'm smart. And it's not because I'm brilliant. And it's not because I have answers. It's because He is. And His Holy Spirit lives and will minister and teach and admonish if I will but do my part. And I liked his attitude. Now, meanwhile, Williams is working through some stuff in his brain. And he says, okay, that's Westminster Abbey, the seat of the Church of England. He says, now, if the Church of England is where I grew up, and it's the Church of England where I was baptized as an infant, and the Church of England is, as I've decided, corrupt, then the baptism I got there must be corrupt too. So he works through the baptism issue. Decides, I need to be baptized as a believer And I want to be immersed. So he gets this fellow named Ezekiel. Good biblical name. Gets this fellow named Ezekiel to baptize him. And then Williams baptizes Ezekiel and 11 others. And they start what most scholars say is the first Baptist church in America. Meanwhile, there is a debate. Meanwhile, his town that he forms, he decides God has provided me this chance to buy this land from the Indians and to have this town and to have this religious liberty. So you know what he names his town? Providence. And its territory becomes Rhode Island. Rhode Island. The only one of the 13 original colonies established by a Baptist. But it was... Chartered not only by Williams, but Williams went over to England to get the charter with a fellow named John Clark, by the way. Also, there was an Ivy League school started by Baptists. Though Baptists were big on religious liberty and this school's charter specifically said it was the it was the seventh college started in America. And the first that said you can come in regardless of what sect or creed you are. Anyone care to guess? In God we trust, in Deo Separamus, is the code for the school. It's Brown University. Brown University. It's long since shed its Baptist affiliations. But that's how it started. Now, Williams dies and he dies away from the church because he got caught up in this movement where he spent all of his time reading the the um, apocalyptic parts of the Bible, Revelation and some of the Old Testament writings and some of the passage in Matthew. And and he spent all of his time trying to figure out how the end times were really happening there today. And he lost sight of what God was doing that day. And I might also add he was wrong. Um but he lost his focus and he left his church and he died outside the church but not without some fame and you can go now in providence rhode island and there's a five acre park in the center of town that is the roger williams park and by the way his great 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 grandson um and there may be more greats to it than that but was nelson rockefeller who was the vice president under gerald ford um small trivia okay Now, the other fellow that joined him in establishing Rhode Island as a church came from Newport, Rhode Island. His name was John Clark. John was a devout Baptist, was for 40 years. And it's an interesting part of history that history records all these things about Roger Williams, who didn't stay in the Baptist church long enough. He started it, but didn't stay all that long. And then the other Baptist church that may have started earlier, we don't really know. It's somewhere around 1640 to 1645. The records lost was started by a guy named John Clark. You don't read much about it. But an interesting guy. Let me tell you quickly what happened with John Clark. I'm going to speed up a little bit in how I'm talking or we won't make it through some of these points that I need to get through. John Clark um, uh, goes back to Massachusetts after he starts the Newport Baptist Church in Newport, Rhode Island, gets Rhode Island set up as a territory, goes back to Massachusetts, gets arrested for illegally having a church service because he's not following the Massachusetts puritanical separatist Pilgrim, gone crazy church, okay? So he gets arrested. While arrested and on trial, he makes an impression on an interesting fella. Um, Let me skip through here. He makes an impression on this guy named Henry Dunster. Henry Dunster is the first president of Harvard University. Takes over the presidency of Harvard in 1640 as the single individual most readily credited for turning Harvard into an academically elite school almost immediately. This fellow was incredibly well-trained. Dunster, the president of Harvard, hears about the imprisonment, hears about the trial, hears what's going on with Clark and starts reading the Bible and decides, hey, there are some baptism issues here when you really read the Bible So in 1650 or 1653, history is unclear, when Dunsters has another child, he doesn't baptize him as an infant. Well, Massachusetts, they go crazy. How dare you not do this? They basically put him on trial, but before they have a chance to put him on trial, he says, let's have a debate. He has this big debate over the issue of infant baptism and and is so compelling in his presentation that he's forced to resign from Harvard. They kick him out. Because he won't change his convictions. Um, by the way, if you ever go to Harvard, that's a well-known building. That's the Dunster Tower. Harvard's very proud of him now historically looking back because he was a man who lost his job for his convictions. Now, let's fast forward briefly. Let's go forward a 100 years. We're going down 100 years later in Boston. They're having a big tea party. They're having a big tea party because of Why? Taxation without representation. They put a tea tax on. Well, that's not the only thing they were taxing. The king did that tax. Do you know what the Massachusetts General Assembly was doing a hundred years later? They had a Baptist tax. They'd also tax you if you were a Baptist. Talk about, you know, that's a, that's going to be a herder for church membership. That's before the tithe. They're taxing you just to get in the door to tithe got everybody upset in virginia the official church of virginia is still the church of england at this time but the baptists are getting pretty organized in virginia they've got a, a an association they're coming together regularly and they're influencing some pretty big hitters like thomas jefferson and james madison and the baptists down there in virginia are getting together and in fact reach a point Where there's going to be a convention. You know, the United States has succeeded from England. We've got our constitution. The constitution's got to be ratified by 10 or so of the 13 states of the 13 colonies. It's got to be a ratified constitution, right? I guess ratified by all of them. Excuse me. The constitution has to be ratified by all of them. Amendments, 10 of the 13. So the constitution's there. Well, one of the big things the Baptists want in that constitution is freedom of religion. Because they're getting taxed up in Massachusetts. They hadn't even been able to live there except for the last few decades. They're they're are, they're having big problems in Virginia. For a while, you couldn't get married unless you had an Anglican preacher marry you. Baptist preachers weren't allowed to conduct marriage ceremonies. Um, uh, the Baptists are having to support the Anglican preachers and pay their money through taxes. So the Baptists are very upset in Virginia. So there's a big vote to see which men, only men voting at the time, see which men are going to go to the convention in Virginia and decide whether or not to adopt the Constitution that's been written. And the big fuss over it for the Baptist is the Constitution doesn't come down real hard on freedom of religion. So there's this Baptist leader named Leland and this other upstart 20-something politician named James Madison. And they have a big meeting to see which one of them. The question is, which of these two is going to be nominated? Because if the Baptist guy goes to the convention, he's not going to push for the Constitution to be adopted. So the night before the election of the delegate, Madison, the upstart 20-something, comes to visit the Baptist. and says, look, withdraw your name and just put your votes behind me and let me be the, the man. I've written part of this Constitution. We need to pass it. The Baptist says, no, you didn't write it right. It's not strong enough on religious liberty. James Madison says, look, if we make it any stronger, Massachusetts won't adopt it. You know how they are. So instead, let's keep it the way it is. And after we pass the Constitution, I'll personally work hard on an amendment to it. Amendments just take 10 of 13 colonies. We, we don't need Massachusetts vote for the amendment. Let's get this signed. Let's get this in place. Then I'll push an amendment for religious liberty. The Baptist leader, Leland, says, deal. They shake on it. And uh, the Baptist John Leland that got the United States, in essence, the Constitution. Virginia adopts it. The rest of the colonies adopt it. And then, through James Madison, we get the First Amendment with the freedom of religion. Madison held true to his word. It's a neat story. Points for home. First, study your Bible, please. I just ask you as a friend, nothing more. As a friend and a brother in Christ, I ask you to study your Bible. If you're taking a test to get some license for your work, if you were taking a test to get some ability to drive, If you were taking a test to get some certification, if your kids taking a test to get out of school, we'd all be either studying or telling someone to study. Study Bible, read it. Get you a concordance, get you a good commentary, get you some good tapes, get you something that helps you plug in. But study your Bible. You might be amazed what will happen. I have different views today on matters in Scripture than I had when I was 40. I'm 46. I'll soon turn 47, if God's willing, and Jesus tarries. By the time I'm 50, I hope to have views where I've grown beyond where I am today. But they're not going to come to me through the water I drink. They won't even come to me through David's sermons, Necessarily. When Paul wrote to Timothy and said, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. He says, a workman, Someone who's working. Who doesn't need to be ashamed because they correctly handle the word of God. The word of truth. So study. Next point. Find heroes of the faith. You know, Paul said in Philippians to join with others in following my example. Take note of those who live according to the pattern We gave you that's Philippians three Philippians four. He says, let your mind dwell on these things that that are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute. The things you've seen and heard in me. Find people of faith and be inspired. And then number three, take seriously our role in democracy. Democracy. Everyone who's been given much, much is expected. Now, I'm not up here telling you to vote Republican. I'm not up here telling you to vote Democrat. I'm up here telling you to vote. And I would never tell you vote Republican or vote Democrat because I don't think you ought to. I think you ought to vote what God reveals in your heart to be right to vote, whether for the candidate or for the issue. But I think you ought to be voting. I think you ought to be voting. Now, here's close. I started out class and said, would you please think of something individual in your life and something in a bigger circle? And here's why. God's had his hand on our planet ever since he made it. God's had his hand on your life ever since he made it. And whatever you've got individually right now, I can't give you an answer for it. But I can point you to the one who has the answer. And this is the one who gave you all of the gifts and skills and abilities. It might be the Williams gift to speak in tongues. It might be the gift not to. But the God who made you has made you special for his purposes on this earth. And whatever you're going through right now, the answer lies in God. And you should cling to him as closely and as tightly as you possibly can. Because you do not want to miss that answer. And that's where the answer is. And in your bigger circle, whether it's society and politics or whether it's work or whatever, God may not be using you to create the state of Rhode Island. But he's using you to create the state of the way he wants things to be in your world. He uses you for that. So when you're going through it and you don't see the answer, it doesn't matter. You're not supposed to see the answer. You're supposed to live the faithful life. God's got the answer. So I just give you that word of encouragement as we look at these people and we look at these events. God is working and writing history today for each one of us. Would you pray with me? So, God, we do rejoice to be your children. We do rejoice to call you God. And frankly, I'm stunned that you've done so many incredible, wonderful things that have brought us here today. And God, I'm honored to be your son. I'm honored to be brother to these folks in here. I'm honored to have them as my sisters and my brothers. And it is my prayer that you will reach down in everyone's heart with inspiration that comes only from your spirit. Inspiration, Lord, to embrace you tighter, walk with you closer, and fulfill your purposes more clearly than we ever have before. And we do this only in faith, Father, for we dare not take a step without you. Through Jesus, our Savior and Provider, amen.